Welcome to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And today we're talking about Bill Clinton. This is our second episode on him. We ended our last episode with him becoming a national figure. And we said that we would start with the presidential election of 1992. So to to catch up a little bit on uh, new, new listeners or the uh, people who are sticking with us, uh, this is a spontaneous, uh, unscripted discussion about uh, presidential politics taken from general sources and uh, commentary in uh, almost 40 years now, or 30 years now, of hindsight, looking at the Clintons. So we have to think the political atmosphere in our country back in the early 90s was very different than it than it is now. Um, George Bush had just completed what a lot of uh, historians and political scientists would consider the third term of the Reagan administration. I mean, very little political change from the policies set forward by uh, President Reagan to George Bush. Uh, he didn't. He didn't make much of an impact. The uh, uh, Wall at Berlin, the, the, the Wall of Shame, was uh, torn down in 1989. The Soviet Union was, was very different than... The Soviet Union still existed then. So our, our relationship with Russia, with the Russian... What was to become the Russian Federation, was very different. NATO still had a, a preeminent role in American foreign policy. Um, the uh, Chinese had not yet developed as a, as a major economy. And domestically, our political landscape or political mood was very different. Uh, we didn't have quite the stark divisiveness between the two parties that we experience and think of now. In 2021, if somebody's a Democrat and lives in a uh, Democratic district, He's true blue. He doesn't have uh, much use or much patience with Republican or conservative uh, outlook or positions. Conversely, if somebody lives in a red district and is a Republican, he, uh, a little bit, uh, he's he, not a little bit, he's, he's dedicated to his Republican philosophy and has very little uh, patience or use for Democratic views. And, and, there's a, a diminishing number of people who belong to the minority party in our in our congressional districts and in our states. So even as the uh, population is becoming more and more partisan, the jurisdictions are becoming more and more partisan. So back when Clinton began running, it was still possible for... Uh, a Democrat like uh, Senator Robert Carey of Nebraska to win a statewide office in a ruby red state like um, like Nebraska, and there were uh, Republicans who could launch major challenges and and even be elected governor in the uh, blue Death Star state of California. Well, at the time of. Uh 88, I mean, 92, California was a Republican state because 
Bush won it in 88, right? And Reagan won it twice. Right. And, and Reagan was the former governor of California. And I believe Nixon won it twice. And yes. Right? So that was, Clinton is the one that flipped California. Clinton was, yeah, he, he was the Democrat who began turning California into a, a, a Democratic state at the presidential level. But uh, Duke Magian, a Republican, was the governor. He was followed by Wilson, okay, another I, Republican who got reelected as I, a Republican. I want to try to um, shape this a little bit more closely, talking about the primary. What what was going on with the primary? Um, was what was happening with Clinton? What was his um, who, Songa was there? Who were the contenders? So the 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 big three were, as you mentioned, Paul Songus, the uh, incumbent senator representing Massachusetts. Another man who I just mentioned, Robert Carey, same name as John Carey. Uh, Medal of Honor winner, uh, successful businessman, and the incumbent senator representing Nebraska, and Bill Clinton. Was there a guy, um, blonde guy, Hart, or something like that? Hart uh, was uh, by now a has-been. I mean, he was kind of crushed in 88 or 84. He had a scandal uh, he was seen on a on a on a yacht named uh, Monkey Business, with a, a blonde girl on his lap. Uh, he admitted to smoking marijuana, which, unbelievably, back then, was a, a death sentence for a candidacy. If you were uh, reported smoking marijuana, your your political career for higher office was over. So the Democrats hadn't held office in 12, I mean, presidential office in 12 years, right? What uh, were they looking for? So they were looking primarily, the Democratic Party was looking primarily to reestablish the liberal consensus that had existed from 1932 to 1968. The liberal consensus was crushed, uh, it was broken, fractured in 1968 with Nixon's uh, uh, election to the presidency, but it was crushed by Ronald Reagan's uh, electoral victory and uh, election to the presidency in 1980. And uh, that, that actually changed the historical context from the liberal consensus to the conservative revival. So okay. the Democrats were trying to swing back to the liberal consensus and cr to crush the conservative revival. Now, when you say that they were going for a return to the liberal consensus, does that run against Bill Clinton? How does that fit in with Bill Clinton's description of himself as a new Democrat? So Clinton didn't see himself as a product of the liberal consensus. He saw himself as a pragmatist. He saw himself as somebody who was brought up to have liberal ideas on race. Uh, he saw himself to have liberal ideas on social issues. He saw himself to have uh, pretty centrist, even conservative ideas on government spending and on financial matters. He saw himself as the person who would marry government and business. 
and create vast new economic opportunities for entrepreneurs and for workers. Okay. okay. What, what, in 88, Dukakis lost the Democrat, right? Who lost in 84? Uh, in 84 is Walter Mondale, who right. and had served 80, as vice president in the Carter administration. In 80 was Carter. And, and in 80, the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, was uh, beaten for re-election. Okay, so who was Clinton bringing into the fold, voter-wise, and what ideas was he bringing in that made him... Now, actually, he wasn't ahead always in 92, but what was it that... Let's go to the Democratic primary. I think he lost early on, maybe. What, what was it that Clinton was drawing out of the, vote, the voter base um, that, you know, Sanga couldn't or that Dukakis couldn't or that um, Mondale couldn't? So Clinton appealed to the working voter, to the working class voter, uh, whether as a man or a woman, whether the person was white, black, or brown. Clinton understood that they wanted to have a job, they wanted to have a safe working place, they wanted to have a possibility of advancement, or at least have a job that would have a sufficient amount of raises and security that they could keep track with inflation. So, so and was he like an FDR And save some money. So it, it wasn't the FDR type thing. The difference was that FDR also had a very conservative... A segregationist wing in his party that he had to placate. By the time Clinton came along, the Bourbon Democrats in the South had pretty much left the party or left political life. So Clinton didn't have to placate a very strong segregationist Southern uh, wing in his party. So it was FDR without the racism? Well, I wouldn't say that there's a particularly overtly racist aspect in FDR's message, but it was a democratic party that had shed itself of its segregationist wing. To say that racism was was completely out of the picture still is false, but Clinton was able to take the lane, the political lane that Jesse Jackson had taken in, in 88, uh, and, and give voice to the aspirations of black America and to fuse those with the aspirations of working class white America. So, so it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't really, so new Democrat compared to old traditional New Deal Democrats, the new Democrat is New Deal democracy without segregation. New Deal democracy without segregation and with the idea that uh, a, a, a black leadership will emerge within the party and the idea that uh, working class Democrats will arise to leadership positions through the union movement and through the organized Democratic Party. Who, who was the... Favorite going into the ninety-two, um, the ninety-two primary. Oh, it's it's really hard to say that anybody had a favorite. It probably would have been hard, although he was he was uh, really had lost a lot of the luster. I'd say that the activists uh, who were looking for a candidate mostly were looking at heart, but because he had 
been so weakened. Uh, unions, for instance, a union that I belonged to at the time, uh, was encouraging members to pick different candidates and support them in the primary and, and then to work on their behalf. But I would say that it was the big three. It was Paul Tsongas representing New England and the, uh, we'll call it traditional Democratic wing, uh, Bill Clinton representing, you know, as you term it, the New Democrats. What, was and, that his term? Yes. And then, well, I'm, I'm going to stick with that. And then Bob Kerry, who was, was a, a really different kind of a Democrat. He had a business background. As I mentioned, he won the, uh, the Medal of Honor for Heroism fighting in Vietnam. Uh, I think he lost his leg over there as well. And uh, he was just very hard to place ideologically. But, excuse me, he definitely had a following in the party. And he was uh, a war hero with, with an honorable record, a very bright guy, very dynamic, uh, youngish-looking, uh, youngish-seeming. And he seemed to almost embody the new democratic ideals that uh, Bill, Clinton, Bill Clinton was espousing. So how does it run? I think Bill Clinton loses an early primary state. So the uh, Iowa primary was kind of a mess. Nobody really emerged from that with a clear victory the way, say, Obama did in 2008. And so, of course, then they went to New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is next to Massachusetts. Uh, New Hampshire media are Boston media. Uh, Tsongas was a Boston guy representing Massachusetts in the Senate. Uh, so it was seen that he was the clear favorite to win the New Hampshire primary. Clinton made a, a full-court effort in New Hampshire, brought in college kids, and also uh, campaigned through what was then a very innovative means of, of, of campaigning, which was VCR tapes. And what is it? Video cassette recording is that the uh, the acronym VCR, and these were uh, uh, I don't know some kind of magnetic tape that would contain audio and visual information, and you could play it on your TV. You got a VCR player, you stuck the cassette into it, and and it came up on TV. And back in in ninety two, this was really cutting edge technology, and it was pretty much you know the more affluent, more uh, sophisticated type voters or, or people who had those. But Clinton actually had a, a VCR made and had volunteers who went door to door, uh, ringing the doorbells, actually speaking to the voters, handing them the VCR, saying, you know, take a look at this, created enough of a buzz. I mean, he only got about one out of four votes in the New Hampshire primary, but basically tied Songus. And then there were uh, four or five other candidates who, who got the other 50%, you know, with 12, 13%. So Songus and Clinton each finished about 10 points ahead of the rest of the pack. But the fact that Clinton uh, essentially tied Songus uh, in his home turf brought Clinton to the, the, the leadership. Then, of course, Florida was the next primary, a southern state, very open state. Uh, 
uh, the state that actually propelled Jesse Jackson to the top of the heap in the uh, 1988 primary, primary. Clinton won there and close to a majority. And then he won the, 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 the other southern states in the southern primary in early March. Uh, and even though Clinton was winning the primaries, he wasn't winning them so uh, powerfully that, you know, everybody looked and said, this is a, a huge juggernaut rolling right to the nomination. But Clinton was winning what we might refer to as the invisible primaries. Uh, Bill and Hillary were uh, buttonholing Democratic officials at the state and national level. Uh, by the time the Southern primary occurred uh, in early March, uh, Clinton had something like 140 uh, um, endorsements from Democratic members of the House. He had endorsements from most of his fellow Democratic governors in the National Governors Association. He had endorsements from about two-thirds of the Democrats serving as state attorneys general. So Clinton was winning the endorsement uh, primary. primary. By Super Tuesday, did it seem that he had it locked up? Okay, so Super Tuesday is a Southern primary. And by the time he won that, he, he looked like he had a pretty clear shot. Uh, he also was winning the money primary because he had like uh, Tyson from Tyson Foods, uh, Sam Walton from Walmart, and a number of other big corporate backers and, and corporate PACs who were, who were supporting him. So he looked good in the primaries, he looked good in endorsements, and he looked good in the money campaign. But what kept putting potholes in the road, so to speak, were different types of... Uh, Bimbo eruptions, uh, accusations by people, for instance, Jennifer Flower, Flowers, who uh, accused him of sexual harassment and exchanging uh, sexual favors for advancement in her job, and also issues that, that, that seem strange to us now. There was a singer who called herself Sister Soldier. Uh, she made a comment that... Uh, why are we killing each other when we should be killing Whitey? Clinton attacked her on that and said, you know, this is one country. We should not be talking about killing each other at all. So uh, that saved Clinton from being seen as a stalking horse for Jesse Jackson or I, another uh, black candidate. I want to go into a little bit more on how Clinton dealt with what 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 became known as these bimbo eruptions and how he dealt with the race issue, so to speak, in a way that's different. Uh, it wouldn't be, probably isn't the way that Democrats would uh, face it now. Uh, FDR, I believe, um, JFK famously, and then more in modern times, Gingrich. Tell uh, Clinton, tell us about Oh, John Edwards, can you talk a little bit about Clinton's approach to it, what the way it was thought of pre-Me Too, how it's changed? Okay, so um, one of the things that we might think of is how different the attitude of powerful men towards 
the women around them was in the 90s than it is currently in the 2020s. Um, uh, there's, there's a book that was recently published about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the meetings of the so-called Executive Committee, the top-ranking military officers, the top officials in uh, the state diplomatic area, the uh, chairman of the CIA, the president, and the attorney general, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's brother. And uh, one of the uh, reviews of the book states that the only woman mentioned in the book was a 19-year-old who uh, John F. Kennedy apparently uh, had betted early on in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Apparently he met her at some event, uh, captivated and seduced her, and uh, had a, a short uh, affair with her, uh, most of which apparently occurred during those 11 days in October. And there were no women officers, no women diplomats, no women uh, tr- uh, treasury officials, uh, and and no women in in any position to have any influence on the uh, outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, threatened civilization. I mean, it was the potential of a, of a a nuclear war, full-scale nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union at a time when the uh, nuclear arsenals would have uh, created a nuclear winter and destroyed the temperate zones of the world as places for human habitation. Uh, Politicians basically seem to view women, beautiful women, as uh, stenographers, as supporters in the rah-rah cheerleading sense, as people to fill crowds and uh, adore them as they drove by in their limousines. And Clinton uh, had Hillary, I mean, who he did view as a partner, and he had the uh, commitment of the Democratic Party to bring more women into government and more women into uh, public positions. But viscerally and in a a, a deeply personal way and in a political way, Clinton still saw one of the perquisites of power being that women would, uh, let's say, service him sexually. And he seems to have been quite... Uh, assertive or aggressive in uh, showing affection to women, to handling them, to stroking their hair, to embracing them, uh, and even to the extent of engaging them in affairs, you know, going out in the afternoon for uh, a tryst or uh with, with Monica Lewinsky, we know even in the Oval Room uh, and presumably also in his uh, executive suite 
at the governor's mansion uh, when he was in Little Rock as governor of Arkansas. So the press, the media, before Clinton's time, accepted, also accepted, the idea that uh, powerful men, uh, part of the perquisites and part of the privileges and part of the compensation for their office and their prestige and their status was uh, pretty open and constant sexual gratification from adoring beautiful women. And with Clinton and with Matt Drudge and with CNN, uh, Cable News Network, 24-hour news cycle, suddenly the uh, sexual peccadilloes and uh, sexual indiscretions and sexual violations of the president and of some other high officials suddenly became a matter of public record, public interest, and of the news and began dominating uh, the news narrative uh, surrounding Bill Clinton. Do you think uh, Clinton paid a high price for taking liberties in that way? Um, did, did you think that either personally or professionally, and did you think that it was higher than politicians before him? Well, again, you know, we think back to John F. Kennedy and the dirty stories that abounded uh, surrounding him, uh, apparently or supposedly. He had two secretaries, which he kept on hand uh, entirely as a matter of uh, sexual gratification. And even the story of one of them filleting him in the White House elevator and the way down to the swimming pool for one of his famous swims at the pool in the White House basement. And the uh, members of the Fourth Estate, the members of the media, knew these things were going on. Uh, Kennedy's staffers knew these things were going on. And as was the case with with FDR and uh, presidents, before the early 1960s, they didn't write about it. There was a so-called gentleman's agreement among the uh, press and the politicians that these things were off limits. We didn't okay. want to embarrass the wives or the children, and so these things were not were not discussed. Okay, let me ask you this question. So, so we're in the era of Me Too and... A man who is just accused of a sexual harassment, not like a affair, but some kind of unwanted, uh, Cuomo, take Cuomo for example, some kind of unwanted talk and his job is threatened and in a lot of people's minds he's, his reputation is severely discredited. On the other hand, you're talking about an era when there was basically zero accountability. So did Clinton change that or was it already changed when Clinton got there? And what do you think is the proper way to 
handle it judiciously but seriously? Oh, there's a lot of a lot of questions in that one. Um, first of all, we have to come out right at the beginning of the statement that the uh, personal spaces and the privacy of all individuals, particularly those working for powerful politicians, powerful businessmen, powerful military officers, has to be respected. Um, nobody should be subject to unwanted affection, unwanted physical contact, unwanted uh, sexual innuendo or, or any, any, any type of sexual harassment. I mean, that should not occur in the working place. Um, their private lives should be a matter of privacy and not something open to uh, castigation or to use, uh, to leverage political favors, business favors, or any ty other type of favors against them. So on the one hand, it would seem that we would be upholding high standards and a more, uh, let's say, puritanical or moral uh, type of, of behavior in offices and so on like that. On the other hand, the American society uh, tends to congratulate itself for its, its freedom, its permissiveness, its openness to new ideas, new mores, new, new moral concepts. Uh, so we, we, we get into kind of a gray area where the exercise of power becomes mixed in to a great deal with the uh, sexual interactions between a powerful executive and his or her staff. So the executive uh, goes into a position where, and I'll say he for a few moments, where he really has no peers, has nobody who, who is his equal, has no real outlets for uh, his sexual energies, uh, without it also blending into his power, his, his, his uh, political persona, and, and so on like that. So it's, 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 it's a difficult call. Clearly, though, the public highly disapproves. You, you, you mentioned uh, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo whose uh, favorability ratings among people in his state has dropped in uh, six weeks from high 50s to low 40s as a result of a series of uh, allegations of sexual impropriety lodged against him by various uh, female members of women members of his staff. So the public still has this... this By the way, sexual improprieties that are much more tame than what you're just describing with JFK or Clinton. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. But uh, the, 
the the attitude has shifted. It's 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 gone from like the kind of co-conspirator kind of attitude of the press and the other political figures that existed, say, at Kennedy's time, to a time now in which uh, people are alert to that. Clinton was kind of in that transitional period. And um, if I didn't mention his name before, Matt Drudge and the Drudge Report, CNN, uh, the cable news network, were important purveyors of the news uh, of, of Clinton's... Uh, in peccadillos, of, of Clinton's peccadillos, and the beginning of a movement to uh, kind of pin Clinton's sexual misconduct into a narrative of his misconduct in a lot of other ways. All right, let's go to the issue of race. Um, you brought up the story where Clinton has the stands up, so to speak, to Sister Soldier, who had made some threat or comment about um, black people getting together and fighting white people. This is another area where we've had a lot of, I would say, shift in the Democratic Party, and I think in public sentiment. to um, Talk about how you see... Po- uh, politicians in Clinton's party dealing with the race issue and why it's changed. So how it's changed and why it's changed. So um, I, I want to bring up the demographics of the Democratic Party a little bit to kind of set the stage for this. I mean, basically, uh, we live in a in a an era of political partisanship in which we're roughly, uh, we're split into three roughly equal segments. The people who are willing to self-identify as Democrats, the people who are willing to self-identify as Republicans, and people who self-identify as independents, as uh, not being partisans of, of either party. And uh, these numbers shift within a few percentage points between elections, depending on which party is in power. But they roughly hover around about one-third, about one-third, about one-third. So one-third Republican, one-third Democrat, one-third independent. Uh, African-American voters uh, constitute about one out of six American voters and are overwhelmingly uh, Democratic. So if we think that uh, black people are one-sixth of the electorate and one-third of the, of the electorate are Democrats, uh, we could do the math and figure that the Democratic Party, the people who self-identify as Democratic partisans, is roughly split uh, 50-50 between uh, black and non-black, between white and black. So uh, the Democrats since 1976 with uh, Jimmy Carter's election have not been able to uh, amass a majority among the white vote. Uh, they, they win elections by uh, running up 
a very close second to the Republicans or sometimes not even such a close second. And then winning the black vote overwhelmingly and, and the difference is enough to, to put the Democrats into power when they, when they win election. So the, the black base of the Democratic Party is a critically, critically important part of their electoral coalition. And uh, they're, 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 they're neglected, and they were neglected even more during the 80s and the 90s than they are now. I mean, and, and, and during the 80s in particular, uh, through the three terms of, of Reagan-Bush, uh, the Republicans consistently won high majorities among the whites and uh, ran very, very poorly against the blacks. And so uh, there was a tendency among white Democratic uh, politicians to think, oh, we got to bring, we, we got the black vote locked in, so we got to bring in more whites to uh, put together a big enough number to get our to get our candidates elected. So blacks were again very much taken for granted. And the idea that there could be a backlash of of driving more whites towards the Republicans and away from the Democrats and away from the blacks in the early 90s was a a, a very lively fear among the uh Democratic office holders and activist base. So uh, Clinton had to show a degree of independence from blacks. Uh, Jerry Brown, the former governor of California who ran against him in the 92 primary, at one point uh, criticized Clinton. Uh, Clinton had a picture of himself taken in an Arkansas prison talking to the inmates. From the Clinton side, it showed Clinton's common touch. It showed that he cared about everybody. It showed that he was even reaching out to incarcerated black men. Uh, Brown uh, framed it as Bill Clinton's a Southern politician who knows how to handle blacks, i.e. Uh, if, if, if blacks got in the phraseology of the time, if blacks got uppity uh, prison cell was there to lock them up in. So there was a lot of animosity, a lot of heat among white Democrats about the uh, role of the uh, black masses as their electoral base and about uh, black leaders, about black culture and so on and so on like that. Sister Soldier in this remark, and, and, and I think it was an offhand remark that she made at a point when she was uh, either just expressing her frustration or she was trying to get some press. Or, but uh, it, I, I don't think it, it, it represented her, uh, her true feelings. I definitely don't think it represented any kind of prevailing attitude or opinion among uh, uh, responsible people in the, in, in the black community or even among less responsible people in the black community, for that matter. I don't think uh, that many people think that way. Uh, but it gave Bill Clinton a chance to, at the one hand, be kind of the uh, friend and patron of, of, of black voters and black politicians, be their advocate, 
but on the other hand, show that he could be firm in the face of, of what white America would view as excessive demands or uh, excessive pride among the blacks, you know, some, uh, some, some idea like that. So, and, and towards the end of his term, Clinton did a tour of Africa and the press went, went crazy with it. And we're saying even, uh, calling Clinton the first black president because he seemed to have such an affinity for black voters and such a high degree of communication and fellow feeling with them at the time. Why would you say that things that a democratic politician now would be unlikely to handle it in the way Clinton has handled it? What changed? So there's there's a number of factors that have changed. First of all, uh, when the Democrats won the House of Representatives back in 2004, uh, after after the Gingrich Revolution, after the contract of with America, uh, when the Republicans took over the House of Representatives in ninety for the first time in 40 years, and the Democrats took it back 10 years later, there was a, a very large class of committee chairs and uh, uh, leaders, uh, African-American leaders in the House Democratic Caucus. Um, 24 out of 42 leadership positions in the House were held by African-American members. Uh, numerous uh, black candidates were elected governors from David Dinkins in New York to uh, Ed, uh, Bill Bradley in, in Los Angeles to uh, a, a succession of African-American mayors in Atlanta, uh, Walter Washington in Chicago, and uh, politicians, both black and white, realized that the Democrats could no longer take the black vote for granted. Um, community efforts in the black community over the past 30 years since Clinton's first term, and I'm thinking here of, of people like uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, in the Atlanta area, in Georgia. Uh, community groups have mobilized the black vote to the point where uh, black, particip black political participation uh, exceeds white uh, political participation, especially among black women. I mean, uh, we have to remember that a very high percentage of young black men are parolees, or are incarcerated. So in those ages when people form their political opinions and their political affiliations, black men are, are uh, excluded by, uh, by law. Black women are uh, taking up the slack so that there's a high degree of political activism and political awareness among the black community. Uh, simultaneously, I think uh, political awareness and political engagement among whites has, has, has dropped off. 
uh, white people are, are much less uh, likely to uh, become engaged in year in, year out uh, political activity. So the power of black America, even even though they're now the, the second largest, uh, third largest group, white largest, Hispanic second largest, African-American uh, third largest, even though they're the third largest group, their their political activism, their political acumen, their political engagement. Uh, right now, uh, generally speaking, of, about the broad mass of people, African Americans are more aware and more active than any other group. And this is a dramatic shift from back in the 90s. Okay. Um all right, let, I would like to move on and really touch on two more things before we finish. One is the Republican response, and you mentioned it, Newt Gingrich's contract with America. And then the other thing that I wanted to bring up was Clinton's economy and the national debt and the dot com boom um i don't know if you want to talk about foreign policy but if you briefly want to touch on that that's fine but really wrapping up clinton i i wouldn't mind talking about the republican response how the republicans shifted as a result of clinton and the economy Okay, so three things. I'm, I'm, I'm going to include foreign policy. So three things. Uh, the Republican uh, response to Clinton, the consolidation of the conservative uh, revival, uh, the uh, extraordinary economic expansion that occurred uh, during Bill Clinton's tenure in office, and uh, a few words about uh, foreign policy is the wall in Berlin had fallen recently. The Soviet Union dissolved. Uh, there was a big peace bonus and the so-called New World Order suddenly became something that was uh, feasible. So uh, beginning with the Republican response, now we have to remember that uh, Ronald Reagan was still living still among us uh like every president uh once he leaves office he kind of disappears into non-personhood um with reagan due to his advanced age uh he was like in his late 70s 77 i believe when he left office maybe 78 uh due to uh increasing uh, increasingly obvious Alzheimer's and general uh, deterioration of his his mental abilities uh, Reagan was not active but his his memory was uh, very strong G H W Bush of course had been defeated in 92 lost his bid for re-election uh, still led a very active uh, segment of the Republican Party. But uh, Newt Gingrich arose. Uh, he was the son of an of a Air Force sergeant. He lived in an, uh, on an Air Force base in uh, 
Central Georgia, Warren Robins Air Force Base, uh, was educated there, became a professor at Milledgeville State University, and was very notorious. I mean, the professorate and the uh, grad students in the Georgia University system all were pretty taken with, with Gingrich during the time that he was a professor. Uh, he ran for Congress uh, on, a, on a Republican platform, and he made uh, what at the time was a compelling argument that Southern heritage, Southern pride was more embodied in the Republican Party than it was in the Democratic Party. So for all the old-timey Southerners, all the, the good old boys out in the country and in the, in the suburbs, uh, Gingrich had a very, very strong appeal. At the same time, there were people like uh, John Kasich of Ohio, uh, very brainy, very cerebral, very far uh, advanced-looking conservatives in the Midwest who were revitalizing the uh, Republican Party. And they revitalized it around the uh, tenets of Reaganism, strong national defense, uh, low taxation, and very limited government. And they came up with a contract uh, with America, which had about 14 items in it, which they spelled out and they nationalized for the first time uh, an off-year congressional election. Uh, typically, in an off-year, there's 435 members of the House running, uh, there's 33 or 34 senators running, and there's no consistent or unified national message. Gingrich's genius was that with the contract uh, with America, he could give a nationalized, unified Republican message uh, there was a whole coterie, including Kasich, Gingrich, Dick Army of Texas, uh, Tom DeLay of Texas, who were, uh, even at that time, uh, of all people, John McCain, who were all willing to run under this banner, and they presented a very dynamic uh, view of conservatism, which the, which the country bought into. Clinton got off to a slow start didn't know if he was a, a liberal or a moderate, got off to a clo uh, slow start with the bimbo eruptions, lost the confidence of, of the moderate, the people, the independents in the middle, and the Republicans uh, uh, won uh, the House of Representatives on the basis of a supposed scandal in the leadership, uh, the Democratic uh, uh House Speaker at the time was a man named Tom Foley, who was completely incapable of dealing with the accusations of uh, corruption against his predecessor, Richard Wright of Texas, and against the housing general who were, uh, in particular the leadership, who were seen to be enjoying special favors from banking, real estate, industry. And Gingrich, between the contract uh, with America, which presented a, uh, a sound, moderate, conservative, but moderate blueprint for American progress 
and the dynamism of the of the young candidates was able to uh, win the House of Representatives over to the Republicans for the for the first time. Clinton at that point looked almost irrelevant, and he struggled to show that the office and he himself, as the incumbent of the office of the presidency, were still relevant. At this time, there was a bombing of a federal building, the Fred T. Mora building in Oklahoma City, by a, a disaffected young soldier who had uh, separated from the army under uh, bad odor, who uh, essentially built a, a car bomb and exploded it outside the federal building in Oklahoma City, killing a couple hundred people, devastating the building, creating a big crater in the ground, scaring the bee Jesus out of everybody. And Clinton was able to go to Oklahoma City, show his famous empathy, show leadership, uh, set in place barriers and other protections for federal buildings, and he traveled around the country and showed that the government was was still in business, that the president still went out, still saw the people, and immediately began a series of uh, small bore reforms, uh, bringing the budget under control, uh, eliminating deficits, and building up surpluses for the first time uh, since before the New Deal, uh, developing a, f a fiscal plan to eliminate the federal debt, which had been in effect since the presidency of Andrew Jackson by 2011, and in general showing that the government could still affect education, transportation, environment, and other issues that people were involved in. Can, Can I, I ask you a question? question? Sorry to interrupt. Can, Can I ask you a question about the uh, federal debt? That that's an issue that, generally speaking, modern or people in our era connect with the Tea Party, connect with GOP. Was that a bipartisan thing? Did Clinton get the idea from uh, Gingrich? How did that come about? Um, Every president up until Jimmy Carter increased the, the federal deficit. Jimmy Carter halved it. So it was really a Southern idea. It was really a Southern thing that we want to eliminate the uh, deficit. The contract with America... Do you mean the deficit? I'm sorry. Do you mean the deficit or the debt? The deficit. Because each succeeding president added on more to the deficit, or, or had a deficit, which, of course, adds on to the national debt. So Gingrich, the contract for America, contract with America, uh, was to eliminate the national debt, lower the deficit, eliminate the, de the, the deficit, and uh, over successive years, eliminate the national debt. So uh, Clinton had a receptive Congress. Now, uh, there's something called Physical Ship, which is a, uh, a video game put out by the Brookings Institution. And they have a, a, a version of it now that has Biden's, uh, Biden's uh, priorities and the GOP priorities. And you can put them into the game and it gives you 16 or 17 
uh, policy areas, uh, taxes, uh, four different tax areas, national defense, foreign policy, health, uh, agriculture, infrastructure, so on like that. And the way they have it set up, the Republican, uh, if, 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 if you play the game and uh, embody the Republican proposals, uh, you can only bring the national debt by 2030 down about 27%. So uh, with, with, with the national debt, with a, a, a national federal deficit now running around uh, 26%, 27% of the federal budget, about 40% of the operating budget, uh, the Republican proposals don't come anywhere near settling the debt. So... This is really a nonpartisan type issue. Neither party really supports it. Uh, it's, it's, it's up to various presidents. Carter, Clinton. These are the only two who have been successful. Uh, I also have to add Trump, although Trump had a nowhere near the success. I mean, Trump only brought the deficit down about 10%. Uh, Carter brought it down about 15%, 50%. And Clinton actually eliminated eliminated the federal deficit and started building surpluses. Now, he was helped a lot by that expansion that you mentioned. And essentially, in the mid-90s, the service sector computerized. The uh, industrial sector already was computerizing and automating with uh, Detroit, uh, the U.S. car manufacturers, leading the way, putting these big robots onto their production lines, moving people off the production line and doing a lot of the welding, the uh, joining and all those other activities and building cars with robots. Uh, The service sector wasn't able to accomplish the same thing until the mid-90s with the personal computer, the PC, or the desktop computers. They all look really funky to us now because they had great big gigantic ICUs, uh, the motherboard on these things was about as big as a suitcase. Uh, the the screen that you look at was a, was a cathode ray tube, uh, which was about twice as big as a watermelon, and it sat on your desk in front of you, and it had this big tube behind it that took up the whole desk. But it was the uh, Microsoft software and the PC, Dell, and companies like that providing the hardware that automated the service sector and paradoxically created tens of millions of jobs in information management. Now, this is separate from information technology. Information technology is about the hardware and the software needed to run information management. Information management are all those records, you know, school records, financial records, uh, transaction records, inventory records, all those things that are essential now in modern commerce. Okay. Reflecting back on Clinton on his eight years in office, what kind of legacy did Clinton leave, and where do you rank him among the presidents? So what do we have now, 47? 
Um, 46, I think. 46. Um, so Clinton's a strong president. Uh, I tend to rank him around Grover Cleveland, who was also a strong president. Not a particularly innovative guy, but uh, a candidate who won three, who won the popular vote in three successive national elections. Okay, one of two men to have ever done that, FDR being the other. Um, Clinton was a strong administrator, weak policymaker. The, the continual complaint. Uh, with Clinton's policy making was that you never knew what he wanted to do. That they would uh, fly off somewhere, they talk on the airplane, they talk when they got there, and basically uh, his policy developed in something like a, a grad school bull session and went in a number of different ways. But Clinton had an elephantine knowledge of government operations. Tremendous appetite for detail, and he, he managed to keep it together, basically based on his, his energy and his intellect. Um, his, his moral foundation was not nearly as strong. He offended even the uh, more permissive uh, segments of American political life, particularly the uh, uh, incontrovertible evidence presented uh, of a semen stain, actually, uh, belonging to him on the upper left shoulder of an intern's dress, uh, demonstrated inconclusively that he engaged in really uh, completely unacceptable sexual misconduct in the White House uh, at a time when uh, the Soviet Union was in collapse, uh, the Russian Federation arose, um, 15 new countries came into being in the former Soviet Union, uh, the Chinese were liberalizing, uh, Clinton was unable to articulate or to uh, promulgate some kind of American response. I mean, we just had kind of a, a laissez-faire, uh, ad hoc kind of way of promoting democracy. I mean, we sent, and I knew people who went, uh, we sent thousands of experts on government, on law, on parliament, on uh, technology, on business, to Russia, to Central Asia, to uh, East Asia, to help the Chinese, the uh, constituent republics of the former Soviet Union, the Russians, to develop robust, strong, democratic uh, institutions in those places. None of them took root. None of them survived past the initial uh, honeymoon period of people feeling free and feeling that the uh, dead weight of authoritarian central planning, central Marxist central planning, was taken off their shoulders. I mean, they, uh, they all 
fell right back into the same kind of centralized command economies, commanded now by a, a new nomenclatura, a new uh, elite composed basically of kleptocrats, whether it's China, Russia, or any of the constituent uh, republics of the Soviet Union. These are all areas where Clinton had the opportunity to nurture democratic uh, institutions, uh, transnational democratic ideas, and they failed. Can, Can you, you give, give us, us a number, number among, among the 46? That's a little arbitrary, but I'd say 22, 23, 24. So Somewhere around in that number. half, but on the right, back half. Right, right. I mean, uh, we might look back and say that the uh, opportunity failures of establishing democracy, of establishing sustainable industri industry and agriculture, which were possible, perhaps, during the 1990s, uh, was a catastrophe. I mean, if global warming, global climate change takes hold as uh, threatened, uh, the time to have addressed it was back in the 90s when we had no vision at all. And it, it wasn't that the science wasn't there. It was that the political will was for continued economic expansion and continued exploitation of natural resources in a, in a big, in a transnational way. And this was part of Clinton's economic miracle. All right. So there, with that, I want to finish up with Clinton. Looking forward to the future weeks, what presence do you think that we're going to be? I think we're going to go with Truman next, right? Right. Um, with Clinton, you know, I gave him 23, 24 if it changes, I'm pretty sure it'll go down. It won't rise. Um, I want to look at Harry Truman next. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, he's a, a, a real everyman, a, you know, a person who was inconspicuous through most of his life, who was cast into an office he was completely unprepared for and who met the challenge. All right, so thank you for listening, and this was Philip. And this is Robert. Thank you for listening. And uh, I, I do want to close on a somewhat somber note. Um, former Vice President Walter F. Mondale died uh, yesterday or this morning at the age of 93. Uh, he was a man of great integrity, of tremendous intelligence, diligence, uh, clean as a whistle, I want to tell a, a short story uh, from Newsweek when uh, Mondale uh, became vice president back in the uh, mid-70s. Newsweek did a quick profile on him. Uh, Mondale became attorney general of Minnesota at the age of 30. He was a boy wonder, and he is his, uh, Walter Mondale's father was a uh, immigrant from Norway and uh, 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 a Lutheran minister of a strict Lutheran background living in rural Minnesota. So young Fritz, that was his nickname, Fritz Mondale, grew up in a very straight-laced and very um, uh, sheltered upbringing. 
And as the uh, attorney general, he was very hard driving. You can imagine, uh, 30 years old, elected to statewide office, elected to a high office like attorney general in a relatively large state like Minnesota. You can imagine the kind of focus and drive uh, that a person like that exhibits. And uh, needless to say, Mondale's uh, drive and ambition and uh, workaholicism graded on his inner circle. And he realized that he, he was losing his closest advisors. And uh, he went to Hubert Humphrey, his, uh, his political mentor, and he said, uh, Hugh, Hubert, what do I got to do to get these guys back? And Hubert said, well, that's easy, Fritz. Invite him over for steaks and a couple of beers. So Mundell set aside a Saturday afternoon, bought some steaks, put them on the grill, invited his four closest uh, associates over for a couple of beers. And when they got there, he proudly showed them the eight beers he had on ice in his cooler. Wow. All right, great. All right, well, thanks, thanks again. And with that, we'll end. Uh, we'll be talking to you again.